Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. We are continuing our discussion with the illustrious Scarlett Peckham about the equally illustrious Whitney, My Love by Judith McNaught. Love it or hate it, you've got an opinion. (laughs) I don't even know where to pick up. I feel like there's so much left on the table here. So for those of you who, for some reason, are just listening to this episode and not the previous one, we had a discussion about Judith McNaught's Whitney, My Love as part of Spring Fling for Chicago Romance Writers Association branch. And we're just continuing the discussion now because there is so much to say about Whitney, My Love. And in the previous episode, we kind of did an overview of the heroine, of the hero, and we started to talk about some key scenes of violence in the novel as well as the context that it was published in. And we're going to pick up there. So if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back and listen to it. So context of violence. (laughs) Can we start with the year that this book was like Judith McNaught put pen to paper in 1978? Mm-hmm. She has also specifically mentioned the flame and the flower. Whenever mm-hmm. she discusses the rape scene, she has specifically cited the flame and the flower. I don't think I've read the flame and the flower. The flame and the flower is Kathleen Woodaway's splash into modern romance. It's like the demarcation from like the 1950s, like gothics. Yeah, I know the flowers of it. The I first. just I don't think I've ever read it myself. I mean, yeah. it's not her best. It's, like, it's not her best. <laughs> it's definitely a first novel, but like importantly, there's a rape scene premarital at the very beginning when she's transported from England to America that he's then redeemed. But I would argue that like Judith McNaught is not being earnest when she compares herself to Flame in the Flower and also other novels of that moment because like none of the heroes are out to rape the women in the sense of like yes. power and domination. Like he doesn't know that she's a virgin in Flame in the Flower. To give you some context, Scarlett, because I think that really matters here because yeah. she has specifically mentioned Flame in the Flower. When she is raped in that book, she is a hayseed who has found herself in London and discovers that she has been lured there under the pretext of a sex trafficking situation. She murders the man who attempts to rape her and indoctrinate her into this and then she runs away to the shipyards of London dressed as a boy 
She's not dressed as a boy yet. She's dressed in finery because the sex trafficker was a dressmaker. That's right. That's right. So she's dressed in finery. She ends up in the shipyards. Skipper is like, oh, she's a lady of the night. My captain has asked me to find a lady of the night. Excuse me, miss. Would you come on board? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, how much? And she's like, oh, I could just use a place to sleep. And he's like, okay, you look a lot nicer than that, but fine. Puts her in the cabin and the guy like assumes she's a sex worker and assumes that her like, no, is like part of the game and rapes her, impregnates her. She goes back home to her family. Once she realizes she's pregnant, her family's like, who impregnated you? And she describes him and they're like, we can make so much money off of this and reach out to him because he's very wealthy and they end up getting forced into a marriage and that's the love story right and importantly he recognizes that she's not a sex worker because he recognizes that she's a virgin because like you can always tell and then he (laughs) feels bad but like makes the sex better and that's like such a break from what Judith McNaught is doing here where it's like this is entirely about power this is entirely about humiliation he specifically says I don't want you to enjoy this yeah right all of her contemporaries make the switch they're like this is rape and now it's not totally because like he didn't know and like that's a key factor in all of these other ones that isn't present in this book crazily he knows everyone knows there's also so many circumstantial reasons in some of the her contemporaries where it's like they're married and she didn't want to marry him but he has to consummate the marriage because otherwise her dad could take her back like there's so many like reasons for why he might sexually assault her take her against her will take her uh against her will (laughs) but it's like this theme of ravishment is usually justified in the text and like with whitney my love it is not justified by the text but also the text it's so weird or it's not justified by the circumstances there you go only explained by the internality of the hero right yeah you're right i didn't know that she had done that that she had like made a parallel or equated both of them like because yeah it's definitely not the same thing i mean she even says expressions such as submitting to him or taking her should never have been applied to lovemaking yet i know this is the way you must think of it the first implies a duty performed reluctantly the second is rape I am not going to take you, air quotes, and you are not going to submit, air quotes, to me, nor are you going to feel any pain. He says that to her on their wedding night after he has already raped her. Like the idea that like, I will not take you, you will not submit because submitting is not consent. Like what the fuck is this book? Also not feeling any pain is pretty presumptuous. You don't know (laughs) what she ate that night. He's very accomplished as a lover, although he never goes down on her. Well, there's so few sex scenes in this book. What are there? Like there's a a kiss, a violent kiss in the beginning and there's a couple of like makeouts, sexy makeouts. Makeouts. I mean, sexy, yeah. depending on your definition of very sexy. Very erotic chess games. <laughs> oh, very God, that chess game, though, that is, okay, that is hot. That is legitimately hot. I know. I also ripped that off in The Duke Attempted. Like, I was like, I know there's so going to be a <laughs> sexy chess game in this, because that shit is the sexy. I don't even know how to play chess, but I was like, yeah, that's the shit. Tell us more about the Whitney My Love fanfic you scrubbed the serial numbers off of. <laughs> No, but then there is, I can't even remember, like there's just so few moments of intimacy aside from these 
stolen kisses where he's like like the language is so violent and then we get to the rape and then there's like the marital consummation oh there's the scene when they go to the ball and she gets really drunk which also seemed like borderline fun <laughs> so fun yes when she I gets, loved oh. that scene and with it the turns champagne. out that she like slapped a painting of him instead yeah. of him because she was so confused yeah it's so funny and like I've been there I've been that girl who had like 19 glasses of champagne because they keep topping it off like the butler you know not that yeah. I have a butler but like my friend <laughs> yeah exactly and like he's so solicitous of her he's like hey I'm gonna like take you home and like you should go upstairs and like drink some water I'll see you in the morning yeah you're like, gonna feel terrible but it's cute that you drank so much and you're like an adorable little yeah. know, 18 year old because she's like an 18 year old <laughs> It's like sex scene wise, we get the rape scene and then we get the wedding night scene and then we get allusions to daily sex. Right. And right. And when very he important. figures out she's pregnant and she's keeping it a secret, but he knows. They always And then do. he loses his <laughs> fucking mind. First of all, I was like, oh, this book is like literally going to end in this consummation. He has this whole like lecture at her about consent, which is like, okay, but all right. Like, and then they'll end with like sex escapades every day but like the book just continued and like continued and then like she knows she's pregnant but she doesn't want to tell him and then he knows that she's pregnant but doesn't know why she's not telling him and then like he finds the fucking letter that she wrote to him like I'm pregnant and then he assumes it's someone else's baby like an asshole yeah and he just never asks her what's going on I would like to Ugh. read a passage that I found very remarkable regarding this this incident where he says he was married to a slut but she had a ripe tantalizing body that intoxicated his mind and fitted his own body to perfection so why should he take a mistress when he had Whitney and he was not going to continue living like a damned monk nor was he going to remain living like a guest in the east wing of his own house either he was going home and he was moving back into his bedroom and when his body had need of her Whitney would service him she would be a servant nothing more than a well dressed servant whose duties were to act as his hostess on the occasion when he required one and as his unpaid whore when he needed one. That is the actual thought of Whitney's husband who, according to the text, is madly in love with her. Judith McNaught going through a divorce this during is after. the revisions of this novel, right? Like, he already explained so, what rape is. This is, like, 14 show pages. Show me where the, the lie is. <laughs> show me where the lie is. That is what marriage was understood as in a lot of ways to this day. Yeah, that's true. Part of, like, my... Uh, with Whitney, my love, is that it's so good. The hero is so good. Whitney is so good. The people around her are so good good it's riveting like it's so domestic but it has the same like energy and vivant of <laughs> Shanna where there's like three kidnappings and eight different pirate ships in six different countries like it has that same energy it's remarkable but it's also this thing of like things that feel so harsh but deep down I feel the truth of them oh my god I think that's why it's so enduring like it's a primal archetypal there's something in our lizard brain or something that is just like, yes, this is the way of the world. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. It just feels so like true to lived experience, but also that's so, it. Yeah. To this day in 2020, I'm not even married and I have feelings of like, am I just like convenient? <laughs> 
like it still comes up you still feel that self-consciousness yeah and also that fear of dying alone that desire to make the boy you had a crush on in childhood still want you oh my god like that's literally all I still want (laughs) (laughs) it's true we all just want pretty women except instead of shop girls it's boys we had crushes on in high school yeah And like having Paul be like a spendthrift asshole who didn't actually care was so validating. Who pre-spent his money on like the equivalent to like an IROC. Exactly. He's like, I bought a ski-doo with your dowry that I didn't have. And I was like, yeah, you did fucking Paul. You were stupid. I loved that. I felt like that was such perfect lived experience revenge. And like, I also thought her like turn down of Nikki who was like you know I know that you don't love me the way that I love you and like I'm still going to take you to Paris and like rescue you from all of this and her like it wouldn't be fair but thank you it's so important to me that you said that like that was also so validating and then like Clayton like what the fuck I think we should take some time to discuss Nikki. Okay, I would love to discuss Nikki. Because I think Nikki might be our entree into why is Clayton still appealing as a hero? Because we have Nikki, who is witty, who is a rake. He has no business loving anyone, but he loves her because she's so special. Like, Nikki hits all of those beats, and yet we don't feel the same way about him as we do about Clayton. I think it's because Nikki actually likes her. Yeah. Clayton wants to possess oh. her. He buys her. He takes one look at her and he's like, well, that person who I've literally talked to like for 17 seconds is certainly going to be my wife. I'm going to buy her from her father behind her back. But like Nikki likes her. And in the like framework of this book, like hatred and love are so intertwined. So like the fact that Clayton is constantly negging her and scaring her, like she knows that Nikki at the end of the day, like he might steal a kiss and like be really dominating. But she she knows that at the end of the day, he's never going to like hurt her because it's obvious how much he loves her. Like think about cycles of abuse. Think about how her father treats her, which we know about yeah. so well. Like, of course, it would be more familiar to be with someone like Clayton because for her affection and violence and rejection are so intertwined. Like it's just so psychologically astute. It makes perfect sense to me, but it's also incredibly distressing. <laughs> but also it's like- incredibly stressing and like is the text aware of that because I think you are exactly right but does the text know that you're right and if not what is the veneer that the text like what are the assumptions that the text is working on that I bought into so one of the (laughs) things that I want to like separate here is like I think you're right dad and Clayton are inextricably linked but the text tries to reconcile that thing in the crop whipping scene yes yeah when he whips her and then she cries and then he's like you're forgiven and she's like oh it's that easy because like usually my dad would give me another lecture and make me feel bad but like this idea that like you eat your punishment and then you're forgiven is like so revelatory to her which is also like such a fucked up thing to like try to be like he's like dad but different I think the thing is he demands in that scene that she hold on let me go to my big post-it because it is one of the scenes that is altered in the revision. So it gets a big (laughs) post-it. 
But he demands that she apologizes and he says he'll stop whipping her once she apologizes and she refuses. She gets through six whippings with the crop before she cries out stop. She says stop. But she doesn't say sorry. She just says stop. No. Which is interesting. She says, you know what? It was childish of me to try and hit you with a riding crop, but I didn't hit the horse on purpose. Yeah. And he says, thank you for that. I don't fucking know what I'm supposed to do with that. Besides the fact that like it's kind of appealing reading your previous books. I know that you understand these moves, but like the getting on his lap as like she has never been so mortified over his lap and he is like wailing on her. But like that is a physical intimacy that she's never experienced before. Like, yeah. She's never humbled herself physically before. Right. And clearly, like, psychologically, this is, like, something that I was thinking about in the early ruin. And obviously, now that I think about it, like, (laughs) this is another scene that must have deeply been on my mind in a book where, like, the hero spanks the heroine, spoiler alert, but, like, consensually in a role-playing context, there is something about, like, being a sassy little minx and then being, like, humbled. Like, I was a bad girl. Yes, you were. But, like... And also giving yourself over to someone like that, that level of trust. Right. And also the sense of just like powerlessness and submission, which if you're Whitney, again, is like a comforting place to be because she's so powerless and she's always been dominated by all of these men around her. Like, yeah, it's so... It's pleasurable to have that surfaced. Yeah. But I I don't know what McNaught wants us to do with that scene. I know what I think about it, but I Yeah. So the text says to be guilty and punished, to feel remorse and then be forgiven was a sequence of events totally missing from Whitney's childhood experience. Whenever she had apologized to her father, he had listened and then launched into a fresh tirade about her misbehavior. And Whitney had expected about the same from Clayton. She stared at him, hardly able to believe what she saw and felt. His gray eyes were full of warmth and he was smiling at her with gentle understanding. Daddycomplex.com. It's, oh it's, my yeah, it's God. exactly there. It's like all there on the page. Literally on the page, though. And also all the times that he refers to her father as like this stupid dad. And like he's constantly like holding her too hard so that she's like forced to rebel, which then ricochets on to Clayton. And like Clayton's psychoanalysis of Whitney is both right on and terrifying and stupid and like I don't know what to do with it you know (laughs) I'm just like I literally don't know what to do with it because he like he does he fits the hero mold of like I see you I know you I know your next move I know why you're going to do it get on my lap still gonna hurt you (laughs) ass up Whitney yeah but it's not like a Johanna Lindsay ass up I'm sorry Scarlett No, I'm just musing. I'm like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. That tracks. (laughs) The thing about like a Johanna Lindsay spanking is that it's a surprise and it doesn't come with the same sort of explicit daddy issues that this spanking scene came with. They're implicit. I'm not going to say that they're not there because I think they are. I think Whitney makes explicit what is appealing about it, which is surfacing, like literalizing everything that you feel inside. Like, instead of having this long, convoluted discussion, you're just going to 
spank me. I'm going to apologize for what I actually feel apologetic for. You're going to accept it or not accept it. And then we'll move on. Like spanking comes across as like a relief. Yes. Yes. And that's another sort of like BDSM echo in this book. Like, you know, the kind of catharsis of. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. The whole time I was reading it, I just felt like it was proto Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's another one where there's like this desire to exert violence and like finding it kind of sexy, but also finding it kind of scary. But the whole thing is just none of it's discussed and like it's all like on the surface, but it's never intellectualized by either party. And it just feels almost like the kind of fuzziness with that book, too, where it's sort of discussed, but then it's sort of violated. But then I don't know. I just feel like the echoes between those two books are so interesting. I think you're so right to say that they're so interesting and also like this idea to like intellectualize. But I also think like there's something about this book and also Fifty Shades that is like to make something public. Like the idea that like Clayton is so embarrassed that Stephen knows what he did. And then like Stephen even has a thing where he's like, it would be kinder to lie and say that I didn't know, but that would be worse. And like when he's talking to her about her friend Emily and he's like, well, how much does Emily know? And, and she's like, everything. And then he's like, Ugh. and it's like this weird move that the text makes about like the harm done is also like semi-public now, but also like ameliorated by who the public is. Her very best friend, who's basically a sister, his very close brother, who's not going to tell anybody, but also like thinks it's wrong. And like, I think this idea of like the harm done being contained, but being contained so intimately and domestically is so radically true and weird in the same way that like I grew up in a Greek Orthodox church and the women of my mother's age who had to deal with the misogyny and domestic abuse that came with the culture would often go to their mothers after a particularly brutal beating and there was like a particular woman in church that I'm thinking of and she went to her mother black and blue and her mother's like you made that bed and you need to lie in it and like you need to ask him to go to the priest so he stops hurting you and like this idea that like the violence can be sanctioned and ameliorated through your intimate circle is so terrifying to me about this book but also so true to my own experience of other people's domestic violence that like in some ways this book is like a walking diary of the patriarchy (laughs) and I I don't know what to do with it. Isabel what you said what really sparked for me was this idea of honesty and like what's unique about Whitney as a person and what's unique about Clayton as a person and what's unique about her relationship to Emily and her aunt and his relationship to Stephen to a certain extent because he's drunk is like honesty and that made me think like they're not just honest with other characters in the book and honest with themselves like they're honest with the readers about their thought process and I think even having that amount of intimacy makes it easier to connect with them like Whitney my love is pulling no punches like we know why Clayton does what he does it's right there on the page we know why Whitney does what she does it's right there on the page we know why Emily does what she does she says stuff like I think it would have been worse for her not to reconnect with you so of course I would tell you where she was right I think that level of honesty is what's really refreshing for reading books from this time and actually from any 
any time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are so many romance novels that have been published in the last 10 years that we've read that have had this undercurrent of misogyny Mm -hmm. and destructiveness and has been dishonest. But here, at least everyone is honest about their internalized (laughs) misogyny. At least everyone is honest about how they feel. And that makes it easier to connect with the characters and follow them through the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. I was also thinking about like, it's the same point really, but to me, it kind of reminds me of like how families often deal with sexual abuse. Everyone kind of knows about it, but it's never spoken of. And I'm thinking of that scene when Whitney meets Clayton's family and like, she's literally surrounded by like all of these Mm -hmm. people who know, and many of them know not like Steven, I think gives his mother just like a look and she knows what happens. And same Whitney gives Aunt Anne a look and she just knows what happens. All of these people know that he raped her like several weeks ago, but they are just laughing and telling like the story of the time he was on the raft and came home in his riding boots all wet and his dad thought he was dead and he got in trouble. And like, you know, they're exchanging witty repartee and Whitney loves the mom and Steven is really cute and seemingly nice, like a rare male presence who's not menacing in the book. And they all know. And it's just like this unspoken thing thing I don't know it really does feel true to life where there's kind of like dark secrets in a family structure and it's just too painful to bring to the surface it's too disruptive so everyone just pretends that no one knows and it didn't happen it's also like he's a good person like look at all the ways that he's a good person he has such a bright future ahead of him <laughs> I read this I thought of Brock Turner <gasps> and I thought varsity lacrosse how could we stop his professional lacrosse career or his swimming career or literally anything that's ever been said about a handsome, charming rapist. And like the fact that this book did that and did it so nakedly and then had this scene of two and a half pages of like, this is what consent looks like. I know as a man what consent looks like was just, I've been striving for it this whole time. That's what this whole farce was about is you wanting to marry me. Oh my god, I didn't even think of that part. That is chilling. Yeah. <laughs> oh it's like I think the thing that is so disruptive to me about reading this in 2020 is A, how willing I was to like Clayton after yes. a rape. I was like, can these two get it together? Right. And like how I mean, all of the <laughs> ancillary characters coalesced around a rapist. Like, nothing in this book felt untrue. And I think more than anything, that's the thing that shook me most. Isabel, I also want to talk about this idea of, like, when she goes to his family after she's encouraged by her friend Emily. And I think it's that scene with Emily that really prepares us to accept the fact that Stephen and the Dowager Duchess are going to be okay with this. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Whitney tells Emily explicitly what happened. And Emily reconciles it. Emily, who has a loving, consensual relationship with her baron of a husband, who is also like, for a person in society, he's willing to shield Whitney as much as his title can. Like, she's allowed to stay there, even though she spent a night with the Duke. He uses his prowess as a baron to really shield her from the gossip that would have happened because he loves Emily so much. And like, Michael is good guy. It's very clear. She's like, do you believe 
believe me? And he's like, I don't believe the story, but I believe you, babe. And I'm like, fuck you, Michael. Like, fucking go eat a dick. Like... It says here in the book, so she returns to Emily's house and she's thinking about her options. The only other alternative was for Uncle Edward to demand justice through the courts, but a trial and the public scandal attached to it would ruin Whitney for as long as she lived. I mean, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. Like, this book is as relevant today as it was in 1978. Yeah. Yeah, it reminded me so much of Chanel Miller's memoir on the subject of Brock Turner. Like, just, like, talking about all of this... It literally could have been written today. It's like nothing has changed. She had to write a book called, what was it called? Say My Name or Call Me By My Name? Because these same dynamics, the same, like the trauma of going through the court system, like I'm sputtering because it's just to me like so painful that literally nothing has changed. Like it's still, people still don't report rape. What what was that book about like the rape culture in Colorado? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, in Montana. Montana, yeah. Was it John Krakauer? Yeah, John Krakauer, Missoula. Fuck, that book was so good. Oh my God. But so like painful to read about like the levels at which no one is believing victims are deliberately not prosecuting crimes or deliberately slut shaming them. Like that is what this reminded me of. That's what this reminded me of, too. Like, the idea that Judith Bignot, also that there's a revision that doesn't fix the rape at all. And, like, that, like, she's complicit in her rape. I was like, this feels so much like exactly what Phyllis Schlafly and, like, Betsy DeVos are fucking saying right now about campus sexual assault. Like, Betsy DeVos read this book and was like, you know who has it bad? Men. So I'm thinking about that scene with Emily and I had to look it up. So she has her dinner with Emily. Like they have a bottle of wine. She feels like I need to tell someone about this. She tells Emily about it. And Emily says, you have to call off the relationship. And Whitney feels repelled by that. She's like, of course he can't call off the relationship with me. Like he never would. And Emily realizes that her friend is in love with this man. Yeah. And then her project becomes her friend's happiness through finding like a mutual entanglement. with this guy and I think that's also so relatable like what are you going to say like your friend comes to you and says I've been raped and you say okay what are we gonna do about it tell me what you feel like and she's like oh well I mean like I don't want to get him in trouble like I really like him what would you say to that I think that's my revelation from this conversation is that this feels like it would have never been published in 2020 this book would have never been published in 2020 not as a romance novel is 2020 yeah but I feel like this book could be published as like a literary meditation on rape culture and sexual abuse and cycles of violence but the idea that it's a romance novel when guys I am not kidding I wrote up I think like the fourth to last page of the book he's literally going to kill her and I 100% believe that he will one day kill her like the way that he acts and there's this book called I don't know if you've read it No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Miller which came out this year and is amazing if you're interested in cycles of intimate partner violence but she talks about how the number one predictor of whether a man will kill a woman he's in a relationship with is if he's ever choked her. And I was reading this and there's this specific scene. Clayton doesn't actually choke Whitney, but he fantasizes about it. I think this is before the rape. I mean, he's just it like, is before the rape. Yeah. He's so mad at her. He wants to choke her. Yeah. This relationship is going to end in catastrophe 
catastrophe and probably Whitney's death at his hands. That is my literal belief about this relationship. <laughs> also think about the fact that five years ago, suddenly butt stuff became common parlance and now choking is common parlance. But consensual choking. <laughs> But how do we arrive at the choice to be consensually choked? How do we come to that point where we're like, I would like my partner to choke me? There's definitely a line between the way that we romanticize things that used to happen to us in, let's say, non-consensual ways to sort of gain control over that experience, which I think a lot of what kink is about is sort of like that that exactly. Like it's trying to rectify, or not rectify, but kind of act as a corrective to these things that have been in our culture for so long you know like it's not just McNaught writing in 78 or 85 or whatever like there are so many stories about whipping governesses in 18th century London like that's not a thing that I invented for my Charlotte Street series (laughs) like there are like literal descriptions of you know like how men loved to go to a brothel to be whipped and there were different scenarios that you could do like if you wanted a schoolmistress to whip you there was like a lady who did that and if you wanted to be whipped by like a riding crop and more of an equestrian setting you could do that this idea that violence done to each other in order to create pleasure is like not new at all and so the way that this through line goes between what was happening 300 years ago and what McNaught is writing about happening 200 years ago and like what we're now doing but doing more on the surface with more explicitness about why we want it done to us like I don't know how we're gonna look back on this in 30 years but it's obviously a continuum you know yeah I think just to be the classic Debbie Downer that I am (laughs) like before the 1970s you know Baudelaire existed and I think when the camera was invented I can't remember which poet he wrote like the first image was of a horse the second image must have been of a dead woman and like the idea of like that's what we're interested in like sex and violence why can't we peel those apart and I think the fact that we all come by it honestly is present in Whitney in a way that I have never seen it explored in another romance novel even where lots of violence exists sexual assault exists there's not this awareness of like we come by it honestly we arrive at this desire and I think Clayton's desire comes from a place of privilege yeah like he's never had to work for it before this frustrates him that's what but also excites him yeah that's what captivates and enrages him yeah and so the idea of desire and hate and resentment. There's a thesis statement, I think, for this book in like almost the end where he says, his grip loosened so abruptly that it seemed as if he had been unaware of even touching her. Pain, he snapped at her as they passed by the butler. Like love is a thing to be shared. Boom, close the book. That is his whole theory. That's it. Yeah. But like what I think (laughs) is so intense and like novel about Whitney my love in comparison to its contemporaries is like there is no amelioration about this idea of pain inflicting pain and possession the pain isn't the thing to be overcome or forgiven or ameliorated the pain is the thing it's constitutive like this is what love is and I think like that and it's like honest appraisal in this book 
feels so fucking true. It's like too hot to hold. It's like hot potato. It's like I just it's a hot potato. This I like, is a hot I, little potato. I don't want it. It's too true to look at. And like it's way truer than flame in the flower. It's way truer than like a pirate's love, which is just like rape from beginning to end. Like this book was written in 1978. It was published in 1985. But like this book feels like 2020 in a way that feels like I'm eviscerated at the end of it. Oh my god, I haven't been so disturbed. Not to break the fourth wall listeners, but I literally like the first thing I said to Morgan and Isabel when we like made a plan of what topics we wanted to discuss was like, I am so profusely <laughs> sorry that I made you read this book. I did not remember how disturbing and viscerally like awful it is. And it well, is a fascinating book and parts of it are delightful, but I haven't been so upset by a book in a long time and I am not like someone who requires trigger warnings or anything like I read all the shit I don't care if it's mm-hmm. like violent or abusive or whatever but I was just like gutted by it I think gutted is right I'm not just saying this because my phone is about to die because I can charge it while talking <laughs> but I think now is a good time to talk about the sexiest part of Whitney my love <laughs> I can tell you my sexiest part. Yeah, if you were prepared, you should go because I actually have more than one in the chamber. I do too, which is also (laughs) the disturbing fucking thing to me. So like my sexiest part is his two and a half long page discussion of consent, which is amazing because it's so fucking thorough. Also very sexy. Isabel loves a really long discussion. That's like definitely my catnip. (laughs) And then my other sexiest scene. And I don't want to take this for anyone. So I'm like going to use one of my weirder sexiest scenes. Because I imagine that there are some like more prosaic ones that we all share. Is the scene wherein Clayton has... I'm on the edge of my seat here. I know. (laughs) It's like because I'm like embarrassed talk about listen no shame in the game don't yuck your yum internalize don't internalize the yucking of your yum like I've clearly been societally trained (laughs) to like possession I'm just glad we got an old school Isabeau favorite someone having a diatribe about consent was your sexiest part obviously that was my two and a half pages like this is what sex where you enjoy it looks like that's that's my jam but it's the scene where he's shown up to the wedding and Emily has invited him there and he is like looking at her while she's a bridesmaid and then like at the end she's at like this like receiving line and he just like shows up behind her like real intense and she like leans back into him oh yeah and then like he sneaks her hand around her waist and the only thing that he fucking whispers after fucking raping her and not talking to her for three weeks is I adore you (laughs) and I was like oh my god I like literally closed the book and I was like I need to find feminist tumblr Right. It was truly outrageous. I adore you. Feminist. Fuck me up. <laughs> Fucked me up. Fuck me up. I adore you. Oh my God. I was like, I need to shut this book. I need to find feminist Tumblr and I need to find a gif that I can rub this out because like I can't with this because I'm like so turned on right now. 
I miss feminist Tumblr porn. Oh my God. I was so sad when they took it down. Me too. I was like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? We're only hurting women. I also miss non-feminist Tumblr porn. I miss Tumblr porn. Tumblr I'm not sad to porn. say it. It was, it was so the best simple. porn. It was just like a great interface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could like get to the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> like you started somewhere else and then you ended on like... Oh my god, classy. you could just go through the wormhole mm. and be like, oh, mm. I didn't know that I was just a thing, but I'm Neil all Gaiman and now I'm here. <laughs> I'm at black and white porn with like feminist orgasms. Oh my god, I love that. Reach. I miss it. Oh, so sad. Anyway. So sad. That's my sexiest part, the church. Do you have your sexiest part, Scarlett? Uh, you go next. I'm trying to think of something. <laughs> My sexiest part is when he's still wooing her. He has forced a kiss on her one too many times and he wants her to want him and he realizes that she is so competitive. It would be really easy for him to exploit her desire to be the best at seducing him. And so he (laughs) provokes her into kissing him in front of his house. He's like, you can leave, but only if you kiss me in a convincing way. Because you say that you know how to kiss, but I haven't seen any evidence that you know how to kiss. You seem like a pretty B team, to be honest. And like the descriptive process of her going from like a chaste peck and being like, there you go, to um, feeling his hardening length against her stomach. I always like a hardening length. I'm a big fan of like, <laughs> ooh, what is Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, welcome to the party. <laughs> I liked that. That was my sexiest part. But wait, that's not the one where she's trapped in his house, right? Where he's like, you can't go home or I'll free you if you kiss me. That is the one. That is. Yes. Okay, yeah. 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 That is. That is hot. I forgot about that. It's definitely hot. Yeah. There's a fire. <laughs> There's also this like very like Burt Reynolds spread of cosmopolitanness to it. He does have very explicit chest hair throughout the novel that is like constantly referred to that I was like not mad about. Well, the way that McNaught is constantly reminding us what they look like, like probably at least once a page, like Whitney with her beautiful hair and her sparkling green eyes walk down the staircase looking marvelous and her like every mm. single page. It's like McNaught, we fucking get it. Like this would be 480 page book if you would stop describing them. (laughs) I have to say though, normally I hate descriptions of clothes because I'm like, this is tasteless and most of the time I did not actually like Whitney's dress but I loved reading about Whitney's dresses. Her hair pieces. Don't you just want diamonds and like sapphires just as like a headband? (laughs) Opal and gold? I had never thought of opal and gold. Oh, beautiful. Now I can't stop thinking about it. I can't and like her topaz choker like I was super duper into her jewels and clothes but I was also deeply into his waistcoats I'm like TBH I'm always into somebody's waistcoats but like (laughs) the fact that she's like it was understated it was black and oh his black speckless clothing is very sexy to me like the fact that his like valet is like picking off a non-existent speck of lint like I love that meticulous like meticulous (laughs) That's the word. 
I am so into masculine meticulousness. Mm. I'm really into this food YouTuber. Which one? And I, it's called... Send me um, all the links after this, please. <laughs> it's called like... Oh my God. I can't even remember what it is. It's based in Seattle. And he like started off like as like a food development lab. So like new technology companies would come to him and be like, we want you to develop recipes. And then he made a YouTube channel. And I remember watching a video where he was like, here's how you sharpen a knife. And like whatever dumbass behind the camera was like, oh, I've heard of people like taping dimes. And he looked up at the camera and he's like, I guess you could do that. Or you could just learn the correct angle. And I was like... (laughs) Sploosh. Wow. That's specific. I was going to fan myself too, Isabel, but I was like, I'm going to knock the mic over. I can't. (laughs) I wish I knew what it was. I'll send it to you. His name is Grant. Of course it is. Fucking Grant. That's the other thing about this book that I like want to get out there. This book works as like a skeleton key for so many other books. So like they corrected me in the chat. I thought there was a Tessa Dare that was like she had this building part in another book, but it's actually an Eloisa James. I like there's another part of this book that felt very specifically like the Johanna Winsley whipping scene, but also several other scenes where I was like, I've read this. And like the fact that his name is Duke of the Westmoreland, I know specifically, and I don't want to get this wrong because this is a comfort book for me. And so like, I don't want to be an asshole. (laughs) It is Grace Burroughs. So Grace Burroughs has these two novellas about the Duke of Westmoreland. And he's very, very demanding. But his heiress is also way better. Her name is Miss Himmelfarb. And I love her. So Grace Burroughs wrote her two novellas in the early aughts and the fact that he is the Duke of Westmoreland seems really specific as a callback also the way that he acts feels like a very specific callback this book is so clearly foundational in a way that I didn't know until I'd read it because when I was reading it I was like I've seen you I know you this scene is very familiar to me and so like it's sort of like reading I don't want to like overstate it but it's kind of like reading the Odyssey where it's like I understand so much more now about the genre and where the genre is like pinging itself from. Yeah, I do think this is a foundational text in the genre. Like love it or hate it. I just like it. It's I'm literally sputtering again. But like so many things that I thought were just generalized kind of like tropes throughout historical romance. And they are. I realized that like it's not just that Whitney My Love has them, it's that like Whitney My Love invented many of them. And it's yeah. just like that's amazing. Like this is a really important book. Love it or it's hate a it. Really it's important doing a book. lot of work and it's really shaping like how other writers and readers are thinking about it. You know what? It's good stuff. <laughs> but also terrible stuff. <laughs> Shout out to Shelf Love Podcast. I definitely think this is canon. This is canon, Shelf Love. This is romance canon. Yeah. I mean, the text is rich. So rich. rich. And it spawned so many other very specific romances that I can literally name. (laughs) You can't discount it. Like, there's no... You're not the only one who ripped it off, Scarlett. I know. Thank God. I don't want the McNaught estate coming after me. No, it's like you and Grace Burroughs and probably 11 fucking million others. Yeah. And, like, I get it. Like, I get it. I do, too. Yeah, no, rereading it. I used to be in love with, you know, Clayton Westmoreland, and this time I found him, like, a horrifying monster who will ultimately kill Whitney. But that's, like, because I wasn't fresh to it. 
probably some degree of guilt at like even having loved it in the past. But no, as a foundational text, I have a hard time with people being like, don't read these old romances. They're so out of date. Like they're kind of a shame on our genre. It's like, no, they are so fantastically interesting to think about. And not just interesting, like well done, like correctly executed. And I think Whitney, my love is also demonstrative of like what you can do with a lot of space. Mm -hmm. More than 350 pages. Yeah. Let let it rip. Like, that's what I wish more. Like, there's this almost self-consciousness to a lot of romance that gets written today. Like, an awareness of who's reading. And I feel like... Yeah, nobody wants to get ripped apart on Twitter, myself included. But then I, like, also I'm like, you know what, though? I can't please everyone. Just go for it. But, like, that takes a lot of, like, mental somersaulting, whatever the word is, gymnastics. Yeah. To, like, figure out, like, what the fuck do I give a fuck about and what the fuck do I not give a fuck about? Mm-hmm. And this book gives no fucks. <laughs> like, this book does not have an assumed reader, as far as I can tell. It's just, like, I'm laying it all out there. <laughs> I think she wrote it for herself. Yeah. Well, the first book, you do write the first book for yourself, right? Like, that's such a good point. Yeah. What was your sexiest part, Scarlett? Okay, I discovered that my sexiest part is actually, like, the meet cute. Like, when she's out on that balcony and this masked, dark, satanic man comes up to her and like he demands a kiss she hates him but then he kisses her and it's like oh my god what the fuck was that like it's kind of like her awakening but Mm -hmm. also I love the dichotomy in romance novels between the fantasy and the nightmare like I feel like they have so much in common with fairy tales and I feel like this is the moment where McNaught kind of establishes that we're gonna do both like he's gonna be the dream and also the punishing reality and Mm -hmm. there is something kind of sex see about like having it both ways <laughs> yeah there's something about the introduction of paul that's like a no 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 and then the introduction I of nikki that's like a no 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 that's not what we're doing this is what we're doing that's like no it's like we knew right I love the red herring heroes I'm not gonna lie like everything about Paul I was like super here for but like as soon as she asked did Mm. you pick this out for me yourself like her going away jewel and like the fact that he hadn't picked it out I was like oh you have no staying power that's the other thing about this book it's like it's so fucking contemporary it's so deeply rooted in what we think of as the romance genre because it's like Paul could never be the hero because he didn't know Whitney he didn't see exceptionalism right and so like the idea that you'd ever let someone else pick a jewel for your beloved is fucked and so like the idea that like (laughs) Clayton is constantly picking her jewels without ever taking credit yeah yes he's dressing her the way that he and she want to be dressed you know and like that's the other part of this that's so like deeply fucked but also like deeply like yeah fuck this book is so contemporary because like he gets her so much more than Paul and Nikki will ever get her and like that this book is so explicit about it and like the gift giving but also like every other way I knew immediately who the red herrings were like I had no compunction about who she was gonna end up with because of like how they fucking treated her and I think Scarlett you're so right that like Nikki wasn't possessive enough of her and that like Paul wasn't enough of anything 
for her. But also that she still wanted Paul is like so deeply intimate. This book feels so intimate. I feel like somebody like really like excavated my id. Yeah. <laughs> and Me was like, too. this is your id. Or but also helped create it because like I read yeah. it was Because <laughs> it was written two years before I was born. It's like, yeah. fuck, is this? I feel like there are so many romance novels that are cribbing this in yes. so many ways that there have to be like so many other pieces of pop culture that have yeah. been like Whitney my love is speaking to this very true thing and articulating it in a way that I can now just copy paste someone yeah. should make like a tree like one of those like I don't know you can make them on PowerPoint <laughs> you know like showing like the, the lines of influence between all of these other things both in romance but kind of in the wider culture that like yeah. might go straight back. Yeah. But the thing you were saying about Clayton kind of brings me to my weirdest part, if you want to go to that. Great, let's do we it. Do. Yeah. My weirdest part isn't actually a part. It's like a lack of a part. My weirdest Very part good. is that we don't get any of his interiority. I mean, we don't even meet him till page 60. He's not really on the scene until what, page 250 or like 300? When we discover the plot that he's like bought her from her dad, which will never stop being something that what the fuck but the fact that we like get so much of Whitney's development and her coming of age and her history and her red herring lovers and all of it and all we get about Clayton is meeting his family and like the last third of the last third and we meet his brother and his mom and they tell one story about him in childhood and so we get his POV like when he comes on the scene but we get no history and there's absolutely no sense of motivation for why he behaves this way and I think you guys are totally right that like we can infer that he behaves this way because he's powerful and this is the one thing he can't have and he's enraged like we can understand from a cultural perspective why Clayton is like this but the book doesn't feel the need to explain why and that says kind of everything you need to know you know like you don't even need to know why he behaves this way there's no point in explaining it you should know already to my weirdest part which is paratextual if that's okay the revision so part of the revision we've talked about the scene changes but another part is adding like I think four or five chapters to the end and I read those four or five chapters and I also read and shared with y'all a piece that Judith McNaught wrote addressing concerns about was Whitney raped they all tie in together so the last five chapters there's a real tonal change and it becomes very explainy the first additional chapter are just Whitney and Clayton explaining to each other their final misunderstanding even though in the previous chapters we knew that they understood and we knew that they understood that the other one understood based on like finding crumpled papers covered in tears and you know all this stuff yeah yeah and then we get this entire like three pages of just like a recap which is strange for the sake of the reader and kind of speaks to like a lack of trust in the reader that must have developed over the course of this. Well, because they misunderstood her because of the insistence. They thought it was rape. And it was her fault. It was her fault. It was her fault because Steven said it was rape. It had nothing to do with the actual scene. But also like, oh my God, 1985. Like fucking. But 1999. Oh my God, 1999. And she's never felt compelled to re-release any other revisions of it which fine I don't think she should like based on the revision she did do if I can be frank I don't think she should have fucking bothered so these other chapters are spent previewing the other books in the series that she didn't even think to write until there was a huge audience demand for them that's called back matter 
there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. McNaught invented that one, too. <laughs> it just sucks. It just feels like this really cold, calculated, capitalistic move to revise it. And people have like said, I'm so glad she did the revision. And then when I did the scene by scene comparison, I was like, well, this isn't really revising anything in the problematic scene. And like, it just doesn't make sense. And then like in her response that she wrote at the end, she's like, will I leave the scene in the book? You'll just have to find out. And it's like, tune in next week. That little tease. <laughs> Judith may <Yeah>. not. <laughs> that little hellcat. <laughs> At that point, it just felt hurtful. Like, I, as a reader, have participated in this novel. I've rooted for Clayton in spite of everything that he did. I have filled in the gaps because I'm an intelligent reader. And then you're going to give me these chapters? I also feel like there's such a weird audacity about an author believing they can control the interpretation of the text. Like, the idea that she thinks that she is the arbiter of, like, the meaning of that scene just because she wrote it. Like, it would be really cool if I could be like the <laughs> the chief justice of Goodreads like yeah. that would be super cathartic sometimes but like a book is a book you put it out in the world and then people love it or hate it or read something into it that you never intended like that's how art works that's how culture works like you're feeding back into the thing that you're putting things into and then we think about them and we process you know like McNaught mm-hmm. is not allowed to say in my I'm sorry in my personal opinion <laughs> you don't even have to apologize Scarlett also like fucking slaps like yeah come on you can't asterisk 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 but also you're saying the truth right (laughs) literally like you're not in charge you're not in charge it's a text like a tweet is a text a blog post is a text a book is a text you put it out there people get what they want from it and then like that's that so it just strikes me as so weird that she's like well that wasn't the meaning but why put it back in who knows I'm in charge you know (laughs) like it's kind of like the machinations behind it are so strange to me like in so many ways I was like I'm letting myself be puppeteered by this author (laughs) I know I am and she's doing a great job and I'm letting it happen (laughs) and then it's like suddenly my leg bent in a weird way at the last five chapters and I was like oh you're not actually someone I trust you don't actually trust me and I don't actually trust you and it really broke the revision for me really broke the illusion of the novel of the romance I meant to read it last night and then I got tired of having McNaught in my brain (laughs) it's totally fine I think that's so right Morgan that like the idea that the revision and also like her fucking framing of the revision broke the Mm -hmm. thing because like I think this book couldn't have broken on to my consciousness at a more like fruitful time obviously because like everything that's happened with me too but also like AOC this past week with this idea that like apologies matter and the way that you say them and like having a daughter or a wife doesn't make you a decent man like fucking yes but also like this whole thing that like JK Rowling has decided to die on this very weird hill and like I can't fucking handle it but like there was a tweet that like Rick Riordan was like pulled into a thread where they're like Rick Riordan what do you think about this and he's like I wrote Percy Jackson and they're like yeah we know but like what do you think about this and he's like (laughs) 
There is no truth but the text. Yes. And like the only canon is the text. And what you take from the text, I can't control, right? Like I wrote it this particular way in 1999. The fact that you've read them this particular way in 2009, not something I can control, not something I want to control. And it was so both validating to have Rick Riordan, who writes exclusively for the Disney imprint, to be like, I've got no control. Like, I don't know what J.K. Rowling's doing. Like, (laughs) it's yours. It's like out there. I write books, you buy them or you don't. And Mm -hmm. like what you build off of them doesn't belong to me. Mm. Well, Anne Rice in legalese went through the same journey where she was suing fan fiction writers and then eventually came to the point where she was like, you know what? This fan fiction is exactly the same as what I'm doing. It's just writing, like taking in all of your cultural influences and putting out a story. Right. And there's no ownership. Right. And so I put it out there. Once you put it out there. And I think like the thing about Whitney, my love, that both feels eviscerating and irritating is that it's so true. And then to have her in 1999 in the shadow of the Monica Lewinsky and everything that we know since. Hit me baby one more time. Yeah. Hit me baby one more time. Like also that Britney is under conservatorship. Still. 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 (sighs) Chilling. Exactly. Which makes this book feel chilling. It doesn't feel like an artifact. Oh my God. I want to show you literally what I wrote on the last page of the book. Can you see that? Chilling. 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 (laughs) That is the, yeah. It is chilling. But like she put out like I'm putting out a revised version because of this rape scene then doesn't change the rape scene. But it gives everyone who reads it, who reads the revised version, this like cushion of thinking like this isn't a rape scene because it's revised. That also feels so chilling. (laughs) Chilling. Yeah. So chilling because people, you know, commented on our posts and they're like, I'm so glad she did the revision. And I assumed that she totally changed the scene. So did I. Even in the chat box today, they're like, did Scarlett read the original or did Scarlett read the slightly better, not rapey revision? And I was like, well, the 1999 is not a non-rapey revision. Well, I did say to you guys when like Morgan was asking me, like, what book do you want to read? And I was like, Whitney, my love. But like, I kind of want to read the 1985 version because I think the rape is handled so strangely because my assumption was that in the expurgated text, they would just take the rape out. But no, we are sticking to our guns on the rape but we are like asserting that it is not a rape and that's like what they do in rape trials guys <laughs> lose the writing crop keep the rape unbelievable add four chapters to promote the other books I mean clever <laughs> <sighs> that was my weirdest part. That's a really good weirdest part. <laughs> Isabel, what's your Isabel. weirdest part? Jesus, after that. <laughs> my weirdest part. The fact that she doesn't end up with Nikki. Like, he's perfect in every way. Like, we have to end up with Clayton. Also, like, the dowager is like, I'm super okay with my heir being a rapist. It's fine. He must really love her. Part of a family tradition. It's not even my weirdest part because, like, I feel like I know women who fucking say that shit. Sure, right? It's like, yeah. it's not rape. He loves her so much. He just, like, was overcome. Like, I think the weirdest part of this book is that none of it is my weirdest part. <laughs> really yeah I think that's a really good point it's like none of it is that weird and that is the weird that's the water we swim in yeah yeah I mean I found this book deeply distressing 
So did I. I'm distressed. I'm looking for the quote because I think the dowager said something that I like circled and thought was like so horrifying and very slut shamey. Like you're learning your son rapes someone from your other son who is like you would think for a mother calling a reliable narrator. <laughs> calling her sweetheart. So and- English. This is why I don't trust the British. <sighs> It's really distressing. Why can't I find it? It's so annoying. I know that I marked it up. I don't know. She's like, oh, I wonder what that little hussy did to like provoke him or disturb it. Like, it's just (sighs) victim blaming 101. And I was, this is again, so true. (laughs) I know where to find it. She asks Stephen why he's so down in the dumps. Yeah, it's before they get married because it's after the rape, but before (laughs) I'm sorry for laughing. Here, she God, says, she must have been seven kinds of fool to refuse your brother, Lady Westmoreland exclaimed. She would have to be stupid not to want him. That's it. That's going to be right after Stephen explains to his mother that his brother, her son, raped Whitney. Yeah. When you overheard what Clay was telling me, he assisted her, the dowager. Miserably, she nodded. How could he have done such a thing? I'm not certain why he did it, Stephen began carefully. Obviously, he cared for the girl and he's a man. Don't treat me like an imbecile, Stephen. I'm a grown woman. I've been married. I've born two sons. I am perfectly aware that Clayton is a man and that such as he has certain urges, Stephen provided when she began feigning her flushed face. What I was trying to say is that Clay is a man who has always been sought after by women, yet he never cared for any of them to offer marriage. Apparently, he finally found the woman he wanted if he gave her father 100,000 pounds. I assume the girl is undowered and her family is poor, but even so, she refused him. She must have. Been seven kinds of fool. Yeah, seven kinds of fool. She would have to be stupid not to want him. I suppose your white lady Westmoreland sighed, coming to her feet. I think she said quietly that he must have adored her. Oh my god, that word again. (gasps) Oh no! Shit. Oh my god. He did, Stephen said. That's like, that's the thing. Like, we spend so much time in his agony around the rape. And, like, everyone spends so much time in his agony around this rape that they're like, oh, you loved her so much. You had to have her. You had to have her. Also, not to lighten the mood, but, like, I don't think that Clayton knows how to masturbate. (laughs) No, I don't think he does either. And everyone agrees. They're like, listen, there's only one way that he can release his sexual urges, and that's to fuck. Yeah. And, like, only in missionary. Like, there's absolutely no question of, like, other kinds of sexual positions. I know. And, I mean, God. Well, at least Whitney enjoyed it the one time. Oh, my God. I know, right? Ugh. Jesus. This book. I know. I know. But, like, also, I'm glad that I reread it, even though it distressed me for an entire week and I had to drink wine out of a pint glass after I read the rape scene. Like, it was only filled halfway, but still. (laughs) I mean, I drank so much after I read it. And, like, I'm a little bit drunk right now because I've had two very strong cocktails. But, like, the thing that, like, continues to shake me is, like, I read this stupid fucking New York Times article about men who felt bad about hurting women. And, like, I couldn't figure out why the New York Times would spend so many pages, like, excoriating the bad feeling of men from 1951 all the way until now. And I was like, it's this book. If you don't account for it, if you can't be punished for it. 
it's okay that you can admit that it was wrong. Yeah. But as soon as we admit punishment, as soon as we admit accountability, it's like a Brock Turner. It's like his future. He's so (laughs) bright. We can't possibly punish him. Like it would be far too much. Womance or a nomance? Womance. Womance. It's got to be a womance. Like it's too canon to not be a womance. It's too canon. It's too canon, but it's also too good to read. It was captivating. It was laugh out loud funny. Oh, when her uncle's trying on that alligator costume. Oh, that was so funny. Oh my God, I love that. Like I literally wrote every time I laughed out loud in this book and there are like 60 of them. Like it is hilarious. The dialogue is off the chain. If he would stop raping her and just like talk to her, it would be such a great book. It would be much to do about nothing. Benedict and Beatrice. Beginning to Think about the amount of writerly skill it takes to write something that has a hero who does wretched things and you are still turned on. Right. I think she's a genius. Like, she's a genius. Do I understand necessarily where she's coming from in terms of her project? Not necessarily. (laughs) But I think she's like a gifted, gifted writer. Yes. Yeah. She's a genius, but she's not the boss of me. Yeah. That is very true. (laughs) Feels exactly right. Scarlett, this has been such an immense pleasure. Oh, oh my God. Mutual. Thank you so much. So fun. Thank you so much. So happy I finally met you guys. I'm sorry that it's over Yay! Zoom. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was so much I know. Fun. It was so much fun. And hopefully we can see each other IRL someday. Soon. Thank you for bringing Whitney, my love. Is that your annotations of the book? That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> Came prepared. Wow. Some of us take this seriously. <laughs> Thank you so much (laughs) for the level of commitment you both brought to the project. (laughs) Thank you. All right, right, girls, I gotta go, but this was so delightful. Bye. 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 All right. Uh, Thank you again so much to Scarlett for joining us for this discussion, for recommending Whitney, my love. And thank you to everyone who came to our Zoom meeting for Spring Fling Chicago North RWA. We hope you enjoy a Whitney My Love cocktail. We hope you visit our blog to see Scarlett's responses to the other Q&A questions we couldn't get to in the last episode. But most of all, we hope you loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.